Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. I'm so excited today to bring you someone who spent over 40 years working in Africa with nonprofits, SMEs, and startups. Our guest, Richard Chowning, has spent time working in and really becoming an expert in the business culture of countries like Benin, Burkina Faso, Tanzania, Ivory Coast, and Togo, just to name a few. I met Richard recently at a conference earlier this year and immediately knew I had to get him on the pod. And he's joining us today to tell his story and really provide insight on how startups need to to go about conducting business differently uh, in certain African markets. If you're not already a subscriber to the Global Startup Movement, be sure to hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcast app or activate our Amazon Alexa skill to make sure that you don't miss a single episode. But now I will leave you with the Africa mentor himself, Richard Chowning. Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond, here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to meet you in Bentonville, Arkansas at the Trade with Africa Business Summit. Uh, you know, why don't you start us off by telling us a, l- a little bit about your story and uh, really the inspiration behind founding Africa Mentor? Yeah, well, thank you very much, Andrew, for this opportunity to share with you. I uh, first went to Africa in 1972, back as a 21-year-old, very unexperienced internationally, but I went right into working with the poorest of the poor in, in Kenya. I was out in the Rift Valley province working among the uh, Kipsigis people uh, for 16 years. And uh, you know, slept on uh, dirt floors and uh, walked many miles sometimes to get to appointments to to meet with people. I was in the nonprofit sector as a, as a missionary. We also did uh, projects and starting uh, medical clinics and schools. Um, I uh, learned the language of the Kipsigis people and also Swahili, the trade language of, of Kenya when I was there. But in those 16 years, I uh, staying that long, it was it's obvious I, I really fell in love with the country and, and with the people. Um, but I found that in our projects that uh, we started and those that I saw of other nonprofits, they really weren't sustainable. As long as I was there and the money was there, those projects continued. Um, but uh, when I left after 16 years, they just seemed to to peter out. And I saw that was the same situation with other nonprofits. Um, I, I went on from there to, to teach um, at Abilene Christian University for nine years, African studies and cultural anthropology. Uh, also raised up teams that went off to, to Africa. Um, and then after those nine years, I went and spent nine years in West Africa, a completely different situation in the country of Benin learned the language of the Aja people that I worked among there. The same story, they were even, it's a poorer country than Kenya. In fact, even today, Benin is poorer and less developed than Kenya was in 1972 when I arrived there. When I came back um, after nine years in Benin, I had a real passion, a burden for being a part of the development of Africa, the economic development, 
because I knew the only way that lives were going to change um, was through uh, jobs being created and something that was sustainable. And as I began to study and to talk to people, I came to the conclusion that the only real contributor to development long-term and, and sustainable was for-profit businesses where people had something at stake uh, in their businesses to make sure that it was sustainable. And uh, then I began to work with entrepreneurs and businesses from uh, Europe and from the United States to enter into Africa. And that was the uh, impetus for starting Africa Mentor. And so you, you've said before that for those entrepreneurs that are operating in the U.S., Europe, outside of Africa, trying to uh, enter into the continent, uh, that one of the one of the hardest challenges in African markets is you know just just finding a, a customer who will buy your product or service because of the the communication challenges. Yeah, uh, and and so can you ex expand a little bit on that and uh, where are some of the biggest challenges when it comes to kind of uh, localizing your product for the for the culture? Yeah. And I, you know, you're hitting right on is localizing the, the product for the culture. Um, many people want to go in and just offer exactly what they're offering, you know, back home, either in Europe or the, or the U S and without any adaptation. And, you know, I, I, I can't sit as a mentor and tell everybody exactly what you have to do in, um, in adapting what, what adaptations need to take place. Um, each product, each service is different, and we need to do some real um, on-the-ground study of what similar things are being done or what the real needs are and adapt the product or service uh, that the entrepreneur has to that local culture. Um, and we're, we're talking about Africa here, offer, offering to Africa, but Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa is 48 different countries. And in each one of those countries, there's a multiplicity of ethnic groups, um, each one having different type of worldview. So we're talking about adaptation to Africa. That's really not really the point. It's adaptation of the product or service to the particular locale in which they want to offer it. And um, it, it, it's, it's a rather big challenge. Right. And I mean, it's not just the, the product and the service that's the challenge, you know, uh, when it comes to the, the different cultures in, in different countries. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a, a big part of what you do is helping entrepreneurs when it comes to, to management challenges, because, yes. you know, managing a team in Kenya is, is not going to be the same as managing one in, in Francophone Africa or, or South Africa. Um, and, and so what do you what do you find to be some of the biggest challenges in really just putting a team together in Africa and then communicating effectively with them? I, I think that the, the biggest challenge is, is not so much in putting the team together, but the entrepreneur's um, attitude and outlook as they go into forming that team. Um, many Westerners, as they begin to work with Africans, they very quickly um, make the assumption that they are uh, lazy people because it takes so long to get things done. Um, but really, it's just that they are a more relaxed people. We, we Americans and Europeans just jump in and want to do work, work, work. Um, but uh, Africans, for the most part, are um, emphasized and work a lot on their relationships. And so just spending a lot of time in 
cultivating those relationships, getting to know one another, sharing about one another's families, things that uh, entrepreneurs in the West would think are uh, not important at all to the ongoing business are very, very important to Africans. Um, to get people to work together as a team, uh, Africans need to feel that they're being respected and that they are being viewed as genuine people. So they, they want the, the team leader or the entrepreneur to be more understanding and more involved in their, in their personal lives. Um, forming those relationships um, creates trust, and that helps put the team together in a more uh, trusting and cohesive manner. Right, and I feel like that advice also applies to um, how, how to approach sales in an African market where it's, it's much more, uh, I think much more relationship based than, than other parts of the world. Uh, how, how do you feel like that, uh, cultural nuance translates to, uh, to VCs who are looking to come in and, and, and invest in African startups? I guess, you know, one of the very, very first thing is, um, it needs to be done face to face. You can get initial introductions over LinkedIn. Uh, you can have uh, uh, conference calls uh, over the uh, internet, uh, but uh, really you need to be there on the ground face-to-face with people. They can see you, know you, not just shake your hands, but sit down over a soda or a beer and uh, uh, talk about family and the country and, and then get into business. So it's, it's, it's a matter of time and it's a matter of face-to-face. The same thing goes with the with the products and the services, they, they need to see them, touch them, feel them. Um, they don't, they're very adept at, at uh, communications internationally. In fact, they're, they seem to, in many ways to be uh, uh, more advanced than we here in the West in using uh, phones and the, the internet. But in solidifying business, it has to be done face-to-face in Africa. Right. So you you are a really great piece on uh, how Africa's diversity offers different opportunities for entrepreneurs in in a lot of different sectors, and I'd just be curious to hear your thoughts on the podcast on uh you know what do you see as some of the the biggest sectors or the biggest opportunities right now uh, in, in in Africa. I think the the greatest opportunity right now is in agribusiness or agribusiness, um, and all of the the different verticals in that the the logistics, um, the the import export, um, the infrastructure for that, the agritech, agrologistics, um, all all of those different areas. Um, Africa has been agrarian um, from day one and still today in most countries. Um, agriculture is the, the predominant um, um, sector of the of the economy. And um, th- that is where the most opportunities are today. Um, most of the farming that's being done there now is being done by small uh, uh, farmers. And they're now beginning to form in collectives or cooperatives. And uh, uh, entrepreneurs who can uh, work together with these collectives to um, upgrade their products, upgrade the whole value chain. Uh, There are many, many opportunities in in that area now. And so do do you think the right term for for African tech right now is is more so value add and augmentation versus the kind of Silicon Valley mindset of, of disruption or disrupting what's already there? Yes. Okay. 
Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I do. Um, you know, there, there, there are a, a lot of things that are already going on there by very, very intelligent and and uh, well educated um, Africans, and uh, yeah, just working alongside of them um, is what needs to is the best approach. Right. And I, I mean, I'll be really curious just to hear kind of the uh, your firsthand perspective on how you've seen uh, kind of technology evolve, mobile phones come in and, and change things in Africa, because m- most people we have on the show haven't been operating in, uh, in you know, African markets since uh, the 70s, 80s, as long as you have. And so I would just love to hear kind of the, um, you know, the, the, the progress within the, the tech ecosystems fr- from your perspective. Oh, yeah. Well, man, when I first went to Kenya in 1972, um, to make a phone call internationally was a huge problem. You had to book it with the local operator. Uh, All the phones were on party lines. And uh, even if you booked it a day in advance for an international call, uh, you may or not may or may not be able to actually make the call. You, in most cases, we had to rebook before we would get it across. Um, for the 16 years that I was in Kenya, because of the difficulty in, in having conversations with people outside the country, um, I, we were not able to have phone conversations more than about a, a dozen times in those 16 years uh, outside, of the, outside of the country. It, it was just too difficult. Today, um, mobile phones, cell phones are everywhere, out in the most remotest villages of, of Kenya and Benin and all of the countries of Africa, you will find um, cell phones being used, and most of those being smartphones. Um, it, it's just uh, penetrated the, the entire continent. And phones before, to, to be able to, to communicate with people, even within the country, to possess a phone um, was a major uh, a plus, a major accomplishment. Um, you'd have to pay upfront costs that made it uh, difficult for most people to be able to afford them. You had to wait sometimes a year, a year and a half for them to put the lines out towards your house, wherever it was, and you would have to pay for that whole new wires that were being stretched out. Today, with the, with the cell phones, that cost is all disappeared. In fact, they communicate cheaper in Africa, uh, uh, inter-Africa and with the U.S. and Europe, uh, cheaper than we can do it here in the United States. And uh, they use their uh, cell phones for all types of, of things. Uh, FinTech for, for, for paying for uh, merchandise in the local shops. Uh, they just present their phone and uh, create the, the payment for that transaction over the telephone in many, many places in Africa today. Uh, they, they, are, they are ahead of, of the West, uh, particularly when we're talking about countries like Kenya and Ghana. And so I'd be curious to hear which, which country, in, in your opinion, has gone through the, the most uh, rapid change and modernization since you've uh, you know, started exploring the different ones back in, back in the 70s. Yeah, I think the most rapid change we'd see in in the in the the dominant economies of the continent, and that would be South Africa and Kenya um, and uh, and Ghana. I would also include include Nigeria in that. Nigeria is such a huge country, and they have a a, a lot of uh, 
more challenges, uh, even though they're the leading econ economy on the, on the continent. Um, they have a lot more challenges simply just because of how big the country is and how involved the infrastructure is there. Um, but I would say, yeah, Kenya and Ghana. Uh, in more recent times, I, I would highlight uh, Rwanda, um, but because it's coming from a, um, a much uh, more underdeveloped in recent years because of their war, um, they have not progressed as far as Ghana and Kenya, but they are progressing very, very rapidly. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there is a, a ton of momentum right now in Rwanda. Uh, I saw Volkswagen just open up their, uh, I guess, I think the first car manufacturing facility in in the country. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so what in your mind stands out when it comes to, I mean, in my mind, it's the big five of Kenya, Ivory Coast, Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa. Uh, but, but I mean, the countries that you mentioned, what stands out as the reason why you think they've gotten... Uh, su such a far lead when it comes to their the, the maturity in the in the ecosystems. I mean that's a that's a harder one. It's more for an economist to, to, to answer, I guess. But I I would say from from my outlook and and my experience, um, I would say they have progressed more rapidly because of the openness of the government to allow change to take place, um, and their their policies. Um, Kenya is the, the most progressive of, of all, but they're, they are not the most open. I think Ghana is more open than Kenya is. But Kenya jumped into the, the technology and the entrepreneurial uh, spheres uh, sooner than, than Ghana or, or Nigeria did. So I think that's why they, are, they, are more, they have progressed more, more rapidly. Right. And, and when you say open, you mean just kind of uh, open to when it, when it comes to like the, the visa process? Yeah, the visa process. Sure. And the ease to do business, um, the, the whole um, um, corruption, um, they, they have controlled that to some extent. <laughs> you know, I, 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 I kind of stuttered over that saying corruption. You know, I had a, a, an African fellow when I was a teaching at, at uh, Abilene Christian University and um, and he, he came there to do a master's degree. And after he finished it, he said, Richard, you know, I always hear people talking about corruption in Africa and I own up to that. You know, we, we do have it, but, uh, you know, here in the U S you may not have the kind of corruption we have, but you, you have things that stand in your way to get things done and, uh, you don't pay bribes, but you have to pay attorneys for everything. So, you know, it's a matter of, yeah, it's legal, but it's also complicated in the West as well. And we use attorneys to help us get things done. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that, I mean, corruption, it's not just an African problem. Cause I mean, we, we just, th this week we published uh, really our, our first deep dive into the, the Mexican startup ecosystem and corruption was kind of one of the things that was brought up as uh, a, a challenge in Mexico as well. Um, and so I think it's, uh, it, I mean, it's not just Africa. It happens in South America. It happens in Southeast Asia. And I, and I think you're right that in more developed economies like the U.S., Europe, China, uh, corruption might not happen in the same manner that it happens in, uh, you know, say Africa. But I think there are different uh, just structure of the system creates different opportunities for, you know, padding pockets. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah, it's. It, it's a worldwide problem. And I, I guess, you know, I don't even like to call it a problem. It's, it's a challenge. It is what it is. And you have to 
understand how to work with it. <laughs> yeah. And so I'd be curious to hear your thoughts or, or if you have any strong opinions on, on, on blockchain and, and how that technology might, you know, ch change some things in, in, in Africa. Well, I mean, that, that is so new that I don't have a great understanding in uh, about that, but I do see it um, beginning to be implemented in, in Africa. People, uh, the entrepreneurs are beginning to, to network with people all along uh, the, the verticals, the value chain of whatever it is that they're offering. And they are, they are putting together um, uh, ventures that are implementing the, the blockchain. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, lo a lot of opportunity in the uh, in the supply chain for for blockchain to kind of uh, introduce more more transparency, more efficiency to uh, you know businesses like commodities. And sure. I think that the you know the the proposition of of the cryptocurrency aspect of blockchain is much more enticing for a lot of different African countries just because they're used to their currencies um, you know go going the opposite way of the uh, the the. <laughs> Where, where you know a lot of people see Bitcoin and all these other currencies going, um, sure. and so I think that that use case is much more interesting in in Africa and in, in certain African countries than it is sure. in the developed world. But Richard, we always finish off each episode with a quick fire round, four questions up to sixty seconds per one. How does that sound? Oh, that sounds good. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. What is your your favorite African dish? Oh, my favorite African dish. Um, uh, I, I guess that would be um, fish and rice from West Africa. Um, East Africa, they don't spice the food nearly as much as they do in West Africa. So I say pan fried fish with, with rice with a nice spicy sauce on top of it. That is my favorite dish in Africa. If I was going to, uh, you know, say a, a tour of Africa right now, what would you say is what what is your most recommended tourist activity for me to do while I'm there? Uh, to to go on safaris in Kenya. <laughs> the game there has been uh, uh, famous and noteworthy for years, um, but I lived right on the border of the Maasai Mara game port. For those 16 years and the Maasai Mara is much smaller today the game is more condensed so there's you can see them more easily but um, population is just encroaching and that needs to happen it's it's a bad for the animals but um, yeah to go on safaris because I don't believe those are going to be there uh, too much more in the future at least the way they are today in the real wild interesting so what is your favorite, uh, favorite book about, about African business, African tech, um, or, you know, anyone who got interested in learning more about doing business in Africa on this show, uh, you know, what, what's one re recommended book that, that you would give them? I'm sorry, Andrew, off the top of my head, I cannot think of a, of a book about African business that I, how about, how about just, uh, you know, do you have a, a, a favorite business book? Yeah, one that I've been uh, spending a lot of time just, uh, I'm down to reading it now for the, the, the fourth time, and it's about cultural intelligence, and it's leading with cultural intelligence, and that's by David Livermore. And finally, I'd be curious to hear, what was your favorite thing about living in Benin? My favorite thing in living in Benin would be... Uh, <sighs> 
there were a lot of social justice things there, and I was able to get involved there. I was more of a community, seen more as a, as a community leader than I was in Kenya. Uh, so I was able to get involved in some of the social justice the things um, w- within the country, uh, particularly as it had to do with the uh, vigilante forces that were forming into uh, what would have become uh, revolutionary fighters. <laughs> well, Richard, thank you so much for your time and uh, thank you for your expert insight. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk, that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world. 